Um, last week, we started a series called Ignorant. Uh, kind of laid out last week, this is where I see culture. And because of where I see culture, there are topics that can be tough. So the first topic we're talking about in this series that we should not be ignorant of as believers is homosexuality. Um, it's a tough topic. If you're my age, I'm 47. Um, you've probably seen a lot of change. If you're older than me or my age, you've seen a lot of change in public opinion when it comes to this thing, right? So um, now as believers, it can kind of feel like this. I found this on the internet. It can feel like that. That now, if you know this, this is uh, the guy in Colorado that was uh, being asked to bake a cake that had stuff on it that he just didn't agree with. And then he was sued and sued and sued and lost, lost, lost. Went to the Supreme Court. He won. The moment he won, a transgender attorney came in and said, bake me a transgender cake, which he refused. And now it's just all over again. It's just, you, you will submit to us. So it can feel like sometimes we're just being beaten down by this. It's amazing how fast this has happened because it was Bill Clinton, Democrat, who signed the Defense of Marriage Act. Like, that's not that long ago. It feels like yesterday to me, right? What? And that's the same thing that the Supreme Court overturned just a couple years ago. So there's been a rapid change. And it can feel sometimes on this side as believers that now we're being bullied, just submit, bake the cake. And what happens when we begin to feel that way is we can look at certain groups of people as the enemy. And then you talk to, and I have, and I've asked people that are homosexual, what do you think about Christians? Guess what they say? They're the enemy. You're the enemy. Who wins in that? Right? Where there's just these crazy battle lines drawn. And it hasn't always been that way. If we just rewind the clock, not very much, to the 1980s. Where in the 1980s, there was this disease that was gripping the world, gripping America. It was called AIDS. And there was massive fear around AIDS. Because it wasn't understood at all at that time. But you knew this. If you got AIDS, it was a death sentence, a brutal death sentence. You died a very, very horrific death. And so there was this fear of like touching somebody that might have AIDS or being touched by somebody that had AIDS, like you could get it. So there was this hysteria around it. Well, there was a group that early on was on the forefronts of caring for people with AIDS. Guess what the, those groups were? Catholic Charities. They stepped up right away and just started to care for people. Those same Catholic charities now are being bludgeoned by the same kind of thing. It's crazy to me. So it's this, it's this kind of way that we are. And I know with this subject, there's a ton of pain. There's a ton of people that have stories. There's a ton of history with it. There's just, it's all here, right? And I know that this topic is tough. It's not my favorite. Like even right now, there's a part of me that wants to change and say, we're going to talk about Christmas instead. Right? Open to Luke chapter two. Peace, goodwill to all. Baby Jesus, right? There's a part of me that wants to do that because it can feel like no matter how you address this, you'll get crucified. You can be the nicest man in the world and still get crucified on this subject. Okay, I watched a interview eight years ago with Joel Osteen. You guys know who Joel Osteen is? Now, theologically, I am as different from Joel Osteen as you can get. But I'll tell you what, that man is the nicest man in the world. He's got a million dollar megawatt smile. He's always kind. He's always compassionate, right? He is the nicest man in the world. So he and his wife go on CNN with Piers Morgan. And they begin to talk. And then up comes the topic of homosexuality. And I'm like, what is he going to say, right? What's he going to say? And then he just, you know, in the Joel Osteen way, giant smile, super kind, Texas drawl is like, well, you know, Pierce, Christians sometimes take one sin and they make it the only sin and they smash people with that sin. 
I don't want to do that. But the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. And like all sin, we take our sin and our brokenness to God. I was like, what a great answer. I had a very small, low expectation with him. I'm like, wow, that's really good. And so Piers Morgan just says, you're judging. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm not judging. It's what the Bible says. No, you are judging and you are judgmental. And how could you do this? And he says, what if Elton John, my friend, and his partner were here right now, what would you say to them? And they said, well, we'd say, we really like your music. (laughs) It's like brilliant answers, right? Super nice guy gets smashed, right? He's kind, he's tender, he's got great answers. Did not matter. Didn't matter. And I know, according to our culture, I can say this in the nicest way possible, and I'll be called a Neanderthal. I'll be said, you're on the wrong side of history. You're out of touch. Well, then Matt, why are you talking about it? I just want to make friends. That's what I want to do. (laughs) No, I, Edgewater, the elders of this church, We know that our job is to guide this group of believers, not by what is popular, but what is biblical. That what the Bible says is how we are guided. And I have written at home this little statement, because it's very important for me to go back to that. And it's this. I am more afraid of Jesus than I am of being the pastor of a small church. So I cannot take those things into my thinking like, oh, people might get mad at me and leave. No. Is this biblical or not? And that's what I have to stand on, the Bible. Okay? So I'm going to be really frank. This question boils down to something really simple, and it's this. Who gets to have sex. That's what it really boils down to. Okay, that's the question. Who gets to have sex? And then based on that question, how you answer it, then you have to say, okay, then how do we live? So those are the two questions I'm going to address. Who gets to have sex? And now that we answer that biblically, how do we live? Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. That's the only way to start these messages. We have to start in Genesis Chapter one, and I've taken the, the, chap, the, the text and that'll be up here so you can follow along or you can open your Bibles. So Genesis 1, 27 is where you always begin on these issues, right? It says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, he created them. This is a radical statement. The original readers, the original hearers of this were a bunch of mud, brick, baking slaves who were underneath the thumb of this tyrant named Pharaoh. And Pharaoh believed he alone was the image of God on earth. And because he alone was the image of God on earth, he could do whatever he wanted with any other non-image bearer. And so he was practicing genocide against these mud, brick, baking slaves, killing their babies. You know the story of Exodus. Now God, the creator, the whole account of Genesis 1 is, I create everything. And then he says to these mud, brick, baking slaves, you are my image bearers. This is brilliant. What this means is this. This is Christianity 101. It means this. Every human deserves respect and value because they have been stamped with the image of God, period. It doesn't matter their race. It doesn't matter their gender. It doesn't matter how they have fallen. It doesn't matter what they've done. They are still stamped with the dignity of being an image bearer of God. And that's how we always begin with people. We value them. 
We respect them. Period. That's how we begin. This, by the way, this little verse is the Bible's gift to the world. Because you look at other cultures, they did not have this value. Read Plato, read Aristotle, read how they viewed different ethnic groups or different genders. Super negative. Only the Bible elevates all humans up to being image bearers of God. It's the gift of the Bible. And if you look at human rights, they track back to this text right here. It's how we begin. We view every single person as an image bearer, right? So that's how it begins. You guys are image bearers. And then chapter two, more relevant, verse 23. You know what happens in chapter two? God puts Adam in a garden. He cannot find anyone suitable. The word suitable there literally means one opposite from him. Very important word. He can't find anyone suitable for him. So he names all the animals, falls asleep. A rib is taken out. Eve is fashioned and he wakes up. And here's what he says. Verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Oh, so good. So Adam, in the garden, starts to name all the animals, right? Lion, tiger, pterodactyl, T-Rex, three-toed yak sloth. And he's just like, I'm tired, falls asleep. Wakes up, sees Eve, and man, he's a different dude. He all of a sudden becomes a poet. Literally, he's singing a song. He's like, man, bone of my bone, which means mine. I want her. Yes, right? And then verse 24 says, the two became one flesh. You know what that is? I hope you do. Think seventh grade health class, okay? <laughs> Awkward as that was, that's what this is happening, right? This one fleshness right here, okay? So here's what God is doing. He's saying, here's what good sex is. Here's good sex. I'm going to define it for you. It's the man and the woman getting married. So good sex, according to Genesis 1 and, 10, 1 and 2, is this. It's the, it's the bonding that happens between a husband and a wife inside the confines of marriage that deepens their oneness. That is good sex. And it is God's gift to humans. Right? It wasn't Adam's idea. It was God's idea. I'm giving you, Adam, this brilliant gift of sex. Right? So you've got Adam and Eve, newlyweds, in Neverland, naked. How awesome is that? Amen? Amen. Woohoo! Right? Good gift. And we should celebrate that. But what happens next? Genesis 3, the fall. And in the fall, here's what happens. God's good gifts to humans decay. One of the good gifts God gives to humans is sex. And if you begin to read the rest of Genesis, what it presents is sex, this really good gift from God, all of a sudden starts to decay. So by Genesis chapter 4, just the next chapter... You've got Lamech grabbing two wives, polygamy, and it's not good. By chapter six, you have these powerful, whatever they are, warlords or beings, gathering giant groups of women to themselves, harems, excluding other humans, men, and saying, these women are all mine, right? You've got incest. You've got rape. 
this good gift that God has given to the humans, re-Genesis just gets worse and worse, decays and gets gross, and the destruction from this decay is catastrophic. Just it echoes out and just fractures relationships, sisters, brothers. There's just this animosity in Genesis because of the fracturing, the decay of this good gift called sex. So God then says, I need to reorder my good gift in a fallen world. So turn forward to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, where God begins to reorder this good gift. Chapter 18 first. I am Yahweh, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Then chapter 20. I'm going to read back a couple of verses. It's hard to put everything up there. But I'm going to read back to verse 10. You guys just have verse 13. If a man commits adultery, God is now shaping good sex in a fallen world. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Not good sex. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Not good sex. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. Not good sex. Verse 13, the one you have up there. If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. God is ordering sex now in a fallen world. And he's saying, this is not good sex. Homosexual sex is not good sex. According to Leviticus. All right? Okay, Matt, fine. But I object. Because this is the law. This is the Old Testament there's all these rules in the Old Testament that we don't keep anymore. Isn't this just one of them? Like, doesn't the Old Testament say, we can't eat bacon? Yes, it does. You're not going to tell us we can't eat bacon, are you? Because I just couldn't do that. I'm out. <laughs> or shrimp. Or wearing clothing of mixed fibers. Right? Okay. So, what then are you going to throw out in the Old Testament? Everything? So verse 10 says, don't commit adultery. Or you say, well, that's Old Testament too. You can commit adultery. Verse 11 says um, that a man should not lie with his stepmother or his mom. Are we going to throw that one out? Probably not. Or a father should not lay with his daughter-in-law. Are we going to throw that one out? Or verse 15 is bestiality. Are we going to throw that one out, right? Or how about this? Jesus, when he's asked, what's the greatest command? He says, command number one is to love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. Command two is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Guess where Jesus quotes that from? Book of Leviticus. So are we going to throw that out as well? Like, hey, listen, you don't have to love your neighbor as yourself anymore. Well, Matt, that would be awesome because I hate my neighbor. Okay, it's a real legitimate question. What do you throw out? What do you keep? One of the ways that we as Bible students find out what we want to keep is this. Is there a straight trajectory through the Old Testament into the New Testament? That's one of the ways. So is there a straight trajectory when it comes to homosexual sex from the Old Testament through the New Testament? Is there a straight trajectory? Well, let's look. Open with me if you to Romans chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds 
and animals and creeping things. I call this the great exchange. Before it was creator gives me fulfillment, gives me focus, gives me the design I need. All of a sudden, no, we don't need creator God anymore. We're not going to give thanks to him for the good gifts he has given to us. And instead, we're going to exchange creator and we're going to take creation instead. Images of man. We don't want a high, lofty view of the Imago Dei. We want a mirror. We want the mirror from other people or animals. We want to act like animals, right? So there's this exchange. So what happens with that? Skip down to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one for another. Men, not boys, committing shameless acts with men, not boys, as some would argue, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, you can keep reading Romans 1, and I recommend it, because it lists then a whole bunch more bad stuff. Unrighteousness, gossiping, slandering, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, right? There is a list. But it's this progression. Romans 1 is saying there is a progression. When you stop honoring God as creator, as the giver of life, as the one that gives us good gifts to enjoy, when you stop doing that, you will immediately elevate something else up to that same position. And it's always creation. So it's creation to creation. Instead of something higher than us, Imago Dei, reflecting back up to God, now we reflect each other. It's a mirror. No longer do we want something opposite from us, Genesis chapter 2. We want the same as us, right? So this is bigger than just homosexuality, if you read this chapter. It's really ordering good sex again. That's what it's doing. And it's ordering it in a civilization called Rome that, oh my goodness, they would make America today blush the way that they viewed sexuality. A free Roman citizen could do whatever he wanted with whoever he wanted. You hired a slave or you bought a slave whose sole job was this. Make sure my son makes it to school and back without getting molested. Read ancient Roman documents. That's why you hired the slave. It was that brutal of a world. Okay? Prostitution, wife swapping, you name it, right? It's all there. Because what happens when we no longer want to serve a God, when we no longer say, I want God's approval of me, we have to turn to somebody else for their approval. So in that vacuum comes someone that we deem godlike or goddess-like. If only I could be with him. If only I could be with her. Oh, then I'd be fulfilled. They're so beautiful. They're so rich. They're so powerful. And for a moment, when you're in the arms of the beloved, you feel like you belong. You feel like you have purpose. You feel like you have fulfillment for a moment. But then the only problem is this. The next day, you're ripped apart. So C.S. Lewis has this great essay on casual sex. He wrote it 70 years ago. He said, casual sex is like this. It's like vomit. It's you eat the food in to taste it alone, and then you vomit it back out the next moment. He said, that's casual sex. Real sex is whole person bonding. You take it in to become one with that person for a life. Casual sex is, I just want to taste you, but I don't want to commit to you. I'm going to vomit you back up. And if you want to know the damage it does to somebody, I'd recommend the book called Girls and Sex by Peggy Ornstein. It's brutal. Not a Christian book. She is a secular research that just said, I just want to look at what casual sex is doing to a girl's soul. It's one of the most brutal books I've read because it's damaging. This connecting and then tearing back apart hurts people. It's destructive. It's, you mean the world to me. Let's have sex. 
Okay, if I mean the world to you, commit to me, marry me. Well, it's more complicated than that. No, it's not. It's I don't mean the world to you. And you're gonna vomit me up the next morning. And I'll just have my soul stepped on time and time again. And the Bible says that's bad sex. That's destructive sex. That's not good. So it's an ordering. And it's the same line that you draw through Genesis 1 and 2, through Leviticus, into Romans. Homosexual sex is a sin. And I'll give you two more passages, two more data points that say the same thing. So flip forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, practice is the key there, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the next one is 1 Timothy. Verse eight, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Note on both of these texts, there's a big list, right? Do not make this, li- do not make this mistake as a Christian where we somehow make one of the items in this list worse than all the other items in the list. Both of them mention sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. Porneia is a catch-all phrase. What it means is this. Any sexual activity outside of a husband and wife in whole person bonding in a marriage to deepen their oneness. Any sexual activity. Viewing porn is porneia, okay? So we try to stratify sins so often like, well, my sins are minor, but your sins are horrendous. This list does not allow us to do that. It puts them all together, Right? It has a liar in this list. Is there a person in here that has never lied? Raise your hand. Because the moment you raise your hand, you just join the rest of us. Right? Greedy is in the list. In 20 years of ministry. Missionary in Vanuatu for a year. Down in an orphanage in Carmen Serdan. 14 years here at Edgewater. Almost. In all that time, I have had the most incredibly gross, horrendous sins confessed to me. Stuff that I'm like, I didn't even know that was possible. Are you kidding? I have never in all that time had someone come to me unprompted and say to me, Matt, I have got to meet with you. There is something going on with my soul. I can't sleep at night. I can't eat. I'm losing weight. My hair is falling out. I've got to meet with you. I've got to confess my secret horrendous sin to you. I'm greedy. Never happened. But guess what? We're in America. Guess what we all are? Greedy. Part of these lists is for you and I to admit, I'm in this list. That's not the worst. I'm in this list as well. Okay? Now, it definitely says both of these. Romans, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy chapter 1, they all say homosexual sex is a sin. It is a straight line that cuts across the entire Bible. Now, if you talk with people, they will say, well, actually the word homosexual is a Greek word that we do not know how to translate. Yes, we do. What Paul has done is he's gone back to Leviticus. I can give you the whole 
like in-depth research on this. He's gone back to Leviticus, those texts we started with. He's grabbed two words out of the Greek from there, the Septuagint, brought them in, formed a word out of those words to describe homosexuality. He's showing the unity across the canon of this is not good sex. And for 1,950 years, this has been the position of the church. Do you know that? What I've just shared with you. It's the historic position and it's Edgewater's position position as well. But Matt, hold on. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Okay. He also said nothing about voting. So should we not vote? He also said nothing about democracy. Should we not have a democracy? Should we run it like a Roman Caesar? Should we we go back to that? He said nothing about owning a small business. He said nothing about rape or molesting kids. Okay, an argument from silence is no good. And I would say this, Jesus has the strongest sexual ethic in scripture, period. Let me prove it to you by two texts. First, Matthew chapter 15. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Again, sexual immorality is that word porneia. It is a bucket that catches all sexual sin. Anything outside of One husband, one wife inside the confines of one marriage for whole person bonding is porneia. Okay? Then the next text is the one where Jesus goes way further than any other law or creed in the Bible. Read with me Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, so he is quoting from the Old Testament, right? The Ten Commandments, book of Leviticus, on and on. But I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, then that your whole body is thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. There are some sitting here this morning that it is a struggle for you not to get into bed with other people. But for the rest of us, we don't get let off. Because Jesus says this, be careful. There is a fire inside of your heart that if it is not controlled, it will explode into lust and take you to hell. And he says, verse 28, way stricter than the law, If you look, the Greek there is a sustained stare. You guys know what a sustained stare is? You all know what a sustained stare is, okay? If you do that, you've already committed adultery in your heart. How crazy is that? That is a sexual ethic that's higher than anything else in scripture from Jesus. Because Jesus knows the difference between lust and love. One will take you to hell, the other one takes you to heaven. So lust is this. Lust is saying, I want anybody. Lust is, love is saying, I will wait for the one that God has for me for life. Lust is games and anxiety. Love is, I will be safe and vulnerable for you. You can be honest with me because you will not scare me off because we are committed for life. Lust takes you to hell. Love is the language of heaven. 
Lust objectifies, says, you exist for one purpose, to satisfy me sexually. Love says, I'm here to give my life to you. Okay, one is destructive. The other is delightful. One's hell, one's heaven. And here's the thing, we know this. So Hollywood will flirt around with lust, but it always ends with love, doesn't it? Like there's a genre of movie called chick flicks. Okay, they're horrible. Hollywood needs to repent, okay? I'm sorry for making such horrible movies. We repent. They'll begin with lust, right? Whatever, a triangle or a love triangle, whatever it is. But guess how all those movies end? A committed relationship. Because Hollywood knows lust takes you to hell. Love is heavenly. So what do we do with lust? What does Jesus say you do with lust? Poke out your eye or take an ax and whack off your arm. Is Jesus serious? If Jesus was serious about cutting off your arm, he's telling us to cut off the wrong parts. Right? Jesus is serious, no doubt. But he tells us the real problem. Verse 28, he says it's a heart problem. So Jesus is going to say through the rest of this book, Matthew, he's going to say, I am building a kingdom that's not based on behavioral modification, cutting off your arm or gouging out your eye. I am going to build a kingdom that's based on heart renovation. I will take out your old heart and give you a new heart. A new heart where your desires line up with the design I put in you in Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm going to do that for you. That's what he's saying. And then when that happens to you, you get deadly serious about lust because the fruit of it is hell. And you cut off every avenue that's leading you into lust because you know it's hell. That leads me to hell. And so you daily pray Psalm 139, God, search my heart. See there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the path everlasting. I don't want those hell paths. I want the heaven path. You do that just like every other believer does. So these are the texts on homosexuality. It is linear and flat. Texts are simple. Living it out is not. So how do we live? Based on this, Bible's clear, how do we live? So maybe you're sitting here today and you have same-sex attraction. What do you do? Number one, you can reject the Bible. You can reject the ethic of Jesus. You can say, no, that's not for me. And I have walked with people that have said that, and it breaks my heart. Or number two, you can say, I trust the Bible, and I trust Jesus. I trust that he is good. I trust that he wants what's good for me. And so I trust him. And I want to follow him. And I know that I now, my identity is not wrapped up in my sexuality. It's much bigger than that. That my identity is now, I am an image bearer of my King Jesus. And that he loves me. And that he will shepherd me. You can do that. But wait a second, Matt. Aren't we supposed to act authentically? Like, this is how I feel authentically. Aren't we supposed to act authentically? No. No. I'm dead serious. There are times I'm driving down 6th Street at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I am in my car, and I authentically want to murder other drivers because they're morons. Should I act on that? No. Listen to what Jesus says. It's Matthew 16, verse 24. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The Bible is not, hey, you're okay, and I'm okay, and everything's okay, and do whatever you want. Freedom of expression, however you feel, last week's message. And anyone that says we should not act this way is an oppressor that must be destroyed. Jesus says, no, your software's off. There's a glitch. 
You are broken. So you deny yourself. And you take up your cross, as painful as it may be, and you follow me. That we're all broken, and we all need to come to the healer, whatever it is. And Jesus says, if you'll follow me, not I'll show you the way, I am the way. Come to me, and I will change you. Through scripture, through community, through prayer, through trial, through life, I'll change you. That's what I'll do for you, right? That's what Jesus says. We're all Pinocchios. Since Genesis 3, we're all Pinocchios, and we need to be made into real humans. And Jesus says the way that you're made into a real human is by deny yourself and taking up your cross and following me. That's what it means, okay? That's what you do. You follow him. Jesus never married. He never had sex. And he lived a brilliant, beautiful life with incredible purpose. He had deep, rich, life-giving friendships with people, men and women alike, okay? So he is our standard. Here's what's interesting to me. I read the American Psychiatry Association recently on this whole idea of being authentic. Here's what they say. It was really fascinating to me. They're agreeing now. They're saying, if you actually want to have a happy life, it's not live authentic because it changes all the time. You're like, what in the world am I? Here's what they said. They said, if you want to be happy, instead, choose an identity that is congruent with your deepest convictions. Exactly what Jesus says. Deny Pinocchio. You're an image bearer of me. You're not defined by your sexuality. I'll give you a new definition. I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you new desires. Follow me. Take up your cross. That's what brings true happiness. And know this if you struggle with same-sex attraction. The Bible condemns the homosexual sex, never the attraction. We're all broken in some way. Being tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. It's not the the same-sex attraction that's a a sin, it's what you do with it from there. And Jesus says this, you deny yourself, take up your cross, and you follow me. And by my spirit, you'll live a fulfilled, brilliant, beautiful life. So Christopher Yon, a guy that wrote um, Out of a Far Country, great book. Um, He just engaged 100% in a homosexual lifestyle. Comes out of it, gets saved, and he has this little quote I love. He says this, He says, growing up and and going through what I went through, he said, I thought the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality. But he said, it's not. He said, the opposite of homosexuality is holiness, what every believer is called to. Right? The the, the opposite is not this other thing, this other way of doing life. The opposite is always the call to follow Jesus and to become a true human like he is to have your lives remade in his image, okay? So if you struggle with same-sex attraction, know this. At Edgewell, there's no glass ceiling for you. If you steward your sexuality according to Jesus and impurity, there's no glass ceiling for you. We, we love you. We accept you. You come in and you steward your sexuality like all of us have to steward our sexuality, okay? So the Edgewater elders actually put together this document on homosexuality, and I just want to read for you the last paragraph of it, Okay? Maybe if I can find it. You can get the whole document if you want, but this is how we ended it. Because it's our heart. We, the elders of Edgewater, know that Jesus graciously forgives people involved in sinful sexual behaviors, whether heterosexual or homosexual. Men and women receive this forgiveness and cleansing by repenting and trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Edgewater strives to be a place where the broken meet the healer and learn about and move toward Jesus. We believe that all people who guide their sexual passions according to the biblical standard of marriage are accepted and welcome to serve and lead in the church. 
Thank you. So what about the rest of us? Three things. Number one, some of us need to repent because of how we have treated people, how we think about people, how we've joked about people. I did. So 11 years ago, I started walking with this guy who was going through a divorce. And I'm trying to help him and counsel him and talk to him. The divorce goes through. He's then got questions about the Bible. These kind of questions are like, this seems a little random. Until one day he just said this, Matt, here's the deal. I'm gay. I said, oh my goodness. Well, that makes sense of a lot of this. And I was convicted because I will sometimes say loosely things that are derogatory. And I had to repent and ask for forgiveness because I hurt somebody that's an image bearer of Jesus. Some of us need to start right there. God, my heart, is, my heart is hard towards them. No. Our hearts are supposed to be soft towards them. That's number one. Number two, we need to teach our kids not just the ethic of Jesus. Yes, teach them the ethic of Jesus, which is super good. We must also teach them the love of Jesus. Because Jesus had the strictest sexual ethic in scripture. No one even comes close to him. And yet he was the most compassionate on people that failed. Read John chapter four. A woman who'd been married five times was currently shacked up with a dude trading sex for rent. Look how kind he is to her. John chapter eight. A woman caught in the very act of adultery with men with stones ready to crush her skull. Look how Jesus walks out with tenderness and compassion with her. Kids, we've got to be very careful because kids can be turned into the biggest Pharisees of all because they get the ethic of Jesus without the love of Jesus and they become very cruel to other people. We have to teach them, yes, the ethic of Jesus, but also the love and compassion of Jesus. We have to train our kids on both of those things. And then thirdly, we move out from church always with the gospel. It's always with the gospel. So what does that mean, Matt? A text that I have been reflecting on a lot is Matthew 23, 23. It says this. Jesus says, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe of your mint, your cumin, your dill. You're caught up in the minutia of the law of morality, like one leaf for me, one leaf for God, nine leaves for me, right? Just this minutia of my morality. And then Jesus says, but you neglect the weightier things of the law. Jesus stratifies the law right there. This is not the weightier things. The weightier things are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That's what Christians do. When it comes down to a choice between morality, whatever it is, whatever our our little thing is, morality and mercy, guess what Christians always choose? Mercy. Because mercy walked out right brings about morality. Romans 2 verse 4 says this, it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. So we walk with mercy, always with mercy first. We believe this, grace can change everything. But you do not need to change anything to receive that grace. Okay? Grace can change anything but you and I don't need to change anything to receive that grace. That's why it's called grace. So we have to be careful of this. And I have this little diagram that maybe helps us. So one side says this. If you behave, do everything we tell you to do, and become, look like us, talk like us, act like us, then maybe, just maybe, if you're good enough, you can belong to us. You'll apply and maybe we'll let you in. That's every rule-based religion in the world. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you believe in Jesus Christ 
And you belong by his grace. Nothing you did, nothing you can do. And then he will transform you. And you'll become like him. That's the, that's the message that we preach all the time. That's the message that we have to offer, extend to other people. It's believe and you belong to us. And then we'll walk with you. Stumble as you may, because I've done it too. We'll walk with you through this. That's the gospel of grace. That's what we keep preaching over and over and over. Does this make sense? I hope so. So I, every Saturday now, <laughs> I'm just cutting down. I have a tenth of what I could have shared. And I know that. There are questions. I'll be taking questions Five minutes after this service, over in the office. You're welcome to join. If you don't want to do that, you want resources, I put together just a list of resources. These are the things that I've read, that I'm in, that I'm talking about, that I'm thinking about. The, the bottom ones are super easy. They're all free. You can just Google those. Um, they'll give you a good primer. Uh, the first book is Brilliant by Preston Sprinkle. Um, I had all the elders read it before we started talking about how do we put together some information on this. So great resources. But maybe the most important resource for us today is right here. Because all of us come from brokenness. And all of us need to be reminded the way we came in was the same way everybody comes in. On our knees, at the cross, begging for forgiveness from a merciful, kind, just king who receives us. Okay? So Jesus today. May we as a community of faith walk well in the culture that we live in. May we be able ambassadors of the good news of Jesus your good news. May we know that our faith is anchored to the word that you gave to us. And may we never stray from that. May we have your ethics. But Jesus, may we also have your love and your compassion. May we be velvet steel unbending, unmovable, but tender and soft and kind. Give us wisdom, Lord. Shepherd us, I pray. May we go to the table. May Jesus, you do what only you can do, renovate our hearts. And I pray this in your name, amen.